I'm Umbreen Khan, and you're listening to Inspired from Interfaith Voices. I'm talking with Dr. Pauline Boss. She's a pioneer in the interdisciplinary study of family stress. Her latest book, The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in the Time of Pandemic and Change, was both an offering to others and a way for her to work through the grief and loss she was experiencing after losing her husband. Boss dedicates the first portion of the book to explaining her approach and the way she views and defines ambiguous loss. The second half is dedicated to the six practices that she argues build resilience in times of change. I spoke to her from her home in Minneapolis. At the age of 87, she explains, she herself is no stranger to loss. Pauline Boss, your pioneer in creating this framework, ambiguous loss. What is ambiguous loss? What do you mean by that? Ambiguous loss is simply an unclear loss. There's no death certificate. There's no body. There's no ritual. There are no hallmark cards for this. So there are two kinds of ambiguous loss. The first is physical. And the first group I studied was the families of the soldiers missing in action in Southeast Asia during the Vietnam War. They were missing physically, and that was very hard on the families. The second kind of ambiguous loss is psychological, and that's where the person is there, perhaps even in front of you, living with you, but their mind is gone and their memory is gone. And the example of that would be dementia, Alzheimer's disease, and the over 80 other kinds of dementia that there can be. There are also um, more common examples of ambiguous loss. For example, with physical ambiguous loss, it might be divorce and adoption, where one parent is no longer living in the household, or adoption where a mother has to give up a child. And the child doesn't know where the parents are. So it's a two-way ambiguous loss. And in most cases, ambiguous loss leads to uncertainty and a sort of frozen kind of uh, grief, a confusion about, I feel like I've lost something, but I don't quite know what it is. Mm. And so it's a very vague area that can lead to anxiety, almost always, and depression sometimes but I would also say sadness always. How do you see ambiguous loss playing out in the pandemic? Where is it most felt? We're a culture of certainty, and we like that and mastery. But now and then something comes along, like COVID, like death, like terminal illness, like some kind of loss that you can't explain. And... And we have to realize that we have to live with that too. What you do is you balance it with both and thinking. I both have a loss and I have some joy in life. I both am grieving and have some joy in seeing my grandchildren. It's the closest to the truth that we can come, this both and thinking. And with the pandemic, you might say something like, I both hate this pandemic and I can become more resilient and live with it. I both 
find I'm losing control over some parts of my life. And I'm discovering some new things I can do that I didn't know I could do before. And of course, that is now. That is now. You also write about discomfort with suffering is rooted in a view that suffering is a failure. Yes. What did you mean by that? Well, that's the mastery orientation of our culture. I mean, we're very, very good in this country, and others are not always like it in that, you know, we cleared the plains, we settled, the pioneers settled, straightened the rivers, we put a man on the moon, we put a camera in outer space, we cured a lot of illnesses, and of course, we found the vaccine in record time. Uh, So we're a very mastery-oriented culture, and perhaps because of that, we don't like loss, we don't like suffering, we don't like something we can't master and fix. And there are many things now that we see we can't master and fix. We've lost over a million people. And people would look at that as failure to fix. Well, sometimes it's inevitable. Suffering is sometimes inevitable. You wrote this book shortly after losing your husband. And you yes. you, you bring that experience into it in a very personal way. I needed to put myself in this book because I was struggling with the pandemic as well. And then my husband's illness and eventual death. So I did write it first person. I'm as much trying to learn how to live with ambiguity and ambiguous losses myself as the reader is. The title of the new book is The Myth of Closure. And I know there's no closure, nor do I want it. And the experts say, nor do we need it. I want to remember him. I want to remember the people in my family who have gone um, and who have died in the past. And I write about my little brother who died of the polio epidemic in the 1950s. So, So, yes, I'm in the book, but I need to tell you that the book had a very different plan originally because I planned it at least uh, five, seven years ago, before the pandemic. And it was going to be a more therapy book. And it was because of the pandemic and because of my husband's illness and my own confusion about what was going on that I changed the format of the book. And frankly, I'm glad I did. Hmm. For someone who hears that the title of this book is The Myth of Closure... I I honestly, in almost any conversation I have with someone about a painful experience, especially losing someone, the word closure comes up. I know it does. It's a favorite in American public, probably not anywhere else. And I've worked with enough people when I was doing therapy who are so hurt by that. People who have lost loved ones do not want to be told there will be closure because they want to remember the person. What they want is to be over the pain. They want some certainty about the loss. That is, they'd like to know where the body is. They'd like to know that the death is made real by a death certificate. And of course, the people I have been working with for the past 40 years are the people with missing loved ones who have none of those markers. And that's why I found that closure is a myth even for them, 
They have no closure. They have no death certificate. They have no body to bury. But I realized that people with a clear-cut death also want to remember their loved one. They don't want closure either. It's a misnomer. Closure is a perfectly good word for a store that's closing or a road that's closed because of a flood. That's closure. But it's an inappropriate and hurtful word to use for people who have lost a loved one. What we mean is that we hope you have certainty. We hope you find peace. We hope you find justice if it was a loss due to a crime. But closure is the wrong word. Mm. You wrote that creating kind of the absolute of closure blocks not only self-understanding, but empathy. It does. It does. Why does it do that? Uh, We believe in mastery and cures and fixing things. And indeed, we're pretty good at that. So when people have a loss, which is the opposite of winning, which we like, uh, loss is considered a failure and suffering is considered the inability to stop it. And so we are very eager for words like closure. The idea of closure means you get over it and you get over it fast. Uh, That's inhumane. Mm. And we need to become more like the Eastern culture where they understand that suffering is part of life. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm Umbreen Khan. I'm talking with Dr. Pauline Boss. She's a pioneer in the interdisciplinary study of family stress. Before the break, she described how her latest book, The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in the Time of Pandemic and Change, was both an offering to others and a way for her to work through the grief and loss she was experiencing after losing her husband. Boss dedicates the first portion of the book to explaining her approach and the way she views and defines ambiguous loss. The second half is dedicated to the six practices that she argues build resilience in times of change. Let's get back to the conversation. You offer up a very hopeful message of there are six things you can consider or think about. Can you talk about them briefly? Sure. They're based on meaning, mastery, identity, ambivalence, attachment, and new hope. Um, In fact, these are things you might touch upon, but not in that order and go back and do it again later on. Finding meaning in your loss is important for you to live with it. And we will eventually find meaning in this pandemic and all that has happened uh, these last few years. And by the way, most of us are uh, mastery oriented. And I do believe that people need some mastery in their life. You need some control over your life. And I was delighted to hear so many people were baking bread and sourdough bread and so on during the pandemic, because if you can't control your outside life, you find something you can control that's smaller. So that was a wonderful adaptation. Your identity changes too. Uh, When you have ambiguous losses, you're not the same person you used to be. Um, People who have missing loved ones, they're not sure if they're still 
a wife or a mother, you have someone who has dementia and it's your parent, you know, are you now the parent to your parent because you're taking care of them? So it's confusing too. And ambivalence is a normal outcome of ambiguity. And there's oftentimes guilt with that, which is better than shame. Shame has some self-loathing with it. And if you have shame about the ambivalence you're feeling toward a parent with dementia or an ambiguous loss of some kind, you probably should talk with someone about that. And attachment, of course, is interfered with by ambiguous losses and clear-cut losses. And so what we need to do, for example, when there's a death in the family, the attachment shifts. It isn't cut. The door isn't shut. Closure is a myth. And finally, we need to find new hope about all the deaths that have occurred, the loved ones who are gone. We need to find new hope about the ambiguous losses, the loss of trust in the world as a safe place the loss of being able to be with loved ones when we want it to be, the loss of our routines and so on. So things won't go back to normal. That's, uh, That's a fallacy. Things will change. But let's hope the change is for the better. And so that's what I mean by let's think about new hope. What is it we would hope for? A better world than we had before the beginning of 2020. Hmm. In your book, you write and you connect that to slavery in the United States. Yes, I'm learning from my Black colleagues um, that there indeed is a cross-generational transmission of trauma. Uh, We knew that from the Holocaust research, but there's other research going on now. It's called epigenetics. Uh, finding that it's not just how we raise our children, but it's the fears and trauma we bring to our parenting that matters. And so I was writing about the George Floyd killing here in Minneapolis and how it awakened at least me to knowing that there has been a cross-generational transmission of trauma from the days of slavery when families were sold apart from one another, children from their parents and parents from one another on the auction block, never to know where the other one was. The family wasn't permitted to be a family. And and that all the trauma that happened back then and, and during Reconstruction has been passed on down across the generations. So we can't call it post-traumatic stress because there's nothing post about it. I, um, as I think about coming on the two-year anniversary of the murder of George Floyd, the national protests, the um, election of President Biden, the insurrection in the United States Capitol, the deep documentation around our polarized attitudes about each other that are driven so much by our political identity more than other identities as it used to be. And our disaffiliation or our loosening connection to community because of this, whether it's pandemic or whether it is other strains and stresses. And I think about all of that. And it is it it creates, I'm going to say, a level of anxiety when I think about how much 
unresolved pain and how much trauma people feel. That's true, but I have a different viewpoint of it. Yes, it's painful now and uncomfortable and anxiety-producing for the entire society and different groups within society. We're in a time of chaos due to the pandemic, due to racial killings, due to um, economic problems, due to healthcare disparities. We're in a mess right now. Let's face it. It's chaotic. But that always has, in our history, preceded a time of change and betterment. And that's how I see and hope it will pan out for us this time, that we truly are a family of men and women who can be decent to each other. I want to ask you one last question. It's about that making meaning. You described as a child that one of the ways that your family coped with your brother's death, Eddie, was to raise money. You write about raising money for a charity to help support others. How does advocacy and campaigning and working to kind of change systems, is that part of the meaning making or is it something different? Well, it does include action. Yes, you're right about that. Uh, You can't just sit and think about it. It requires some action. Uh, something has to change. And as I said, my, my family, this was, we were not rich at all. And we went door to door collecting dimes for the March of Dimes. So it was a small thing, very small, but it gave us purpose to deal with a life that was, made no sense to us. Eddie played junior high football one Friday night and he died the next Friday because it was bulbar polio and went very fast. Uh, So we had, we were grieving terribly. And in fact, going house to house collecting dimes, you see, made us connect with other people, which is also helpful in dealing with uh, this kind of loss. So you need to find a purpose in the loss. Sometimes if it's a murder, for example, um, people say, well, now they have closure because the murderer was sentenced uh, to prison. No, they don't have closure. They have justice. Uh, And so acknowledgement and justice are also necessary to make sense out of a loss. Somebody has to say, you had a loss, uh, and it it was bad. I'm sorry about that. But wanting change requires action. And so you need to find a purpose in that loss. And as we go into Memorial Day weekend, how will you be spending this time? Well, uh, this week I went to my hometown, which is six hours away, and decorated the graves of Eddie and my parents. Uh, And uh, my sister's son decorated her grave, and I saw him. And then this weekend, since I'm back in Minneapolis, I'll obviously take flowers to where my husband's remains are. Uh, And then, frankly, I'll try to find something joyful to do. So it will be both a weekend of sadness and a weekend, I hope, of joyful remembering 
of all the loved ones we have had and, and how they've contributed to our lives. And frankly, because I'm very supportive of the military, I'm very thankful for all the soldiers and um, military people who have given their lives to defending the people of this country as well. Dr. Boss received her Ph.D. in Child Development and Family Studies from the University of Wisconsin-Madison. A pioneer in the interdisciplinary study of family stress for over 30 years, she's worked on connecting family science, sociology, family therapy, and psychology. She's the author of seven books, her latest, The Myth of Closure, Ambiguous Loss in the Time of Pandemic and Change. That's all for this week's show. Special thanks to our founder, Maureen Fiedler. This week's producers were Kevin McCarthy and Kimberly Winston. Music and sounds by Blue Dot Sessions, Audio Binger, and a special shout out to MC Yogi for our theme music. If you missed any portion of this program, you can head over to interfaithradio.org, where you can sign up for the podcast, hit the newsletter, learn more about us, and explore the archives. Wherever you are, friends, I hope you are well, I hope you are safe, and I hope you stay connected, and I'll see you next week. I'm your host and executive producer, Umbreen Khan.